If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. The Matrix was a documentary, I assure you. You are living inside of a simulation, even if it's just the simulation created by your own brain to help you navigate the real world. The fact is that we all see a facsimile of the world that is created on the fly by our brains. And when everything is fine, we're all free to learn, grow, and chase our dreams. But when things go off the rails and we become anxious or depressed, it's like there's a glitch in the Matrix and all hell breaks loose. And that's what today's episode, part two with Nolan Williams, is all about. Nolan is at the forefront of brain research, specifically your brain as it relates to anxiety and depression. And in today's episode, we explore how things can go wrong for any of us, what to do when there's a glitch in our personal matrix, and some of the cutting edge treatments like electromagnetic stimulation and psychedelics that Nolan has been exploring in his laboratory. Listen closely to this one, guys. I feel such an intense obligation to help people that struggle with anxiety and depression. Since anxiety has been such a big part of my life, and I know firsthand how debilitating it can be. And I also know how profound it can be when you find a way to get back on track. And today we are deep diving into this complex world of mental health, helping you guys bridge the gap between brain science and what you can actually do to make changes in your life. And if this one lands for you, and I hope it does, please be sure to rate and review the show so that we can reach even more people just like you. Now, without further ado, I'm Tom Bilyeu, and I bring you part two of Nolan Williams. One question that that I have based on some of the things that you're saying is, is it the profundity of the experience from a psychedelic or is it the glial uh, brain growth factor? I forget the exact letters. Glial derived neurotrophic factor. There we go. Yeah, because if I can inject it right into the site, the the glial derived neurotrophic factor, if I can inject that right into the dopamine receptor, was Mm, that it? Dopamine, Um, yeah then in a mouse it sure but then that indicates that it may not be the profundity of the experience that's actually creating it going back to ssris and it's not that it's building up in your system it's that there's potentially that it's just causing you to um, secrete more bdnf and that's really what's going on um what where does the data point that we need to look i get there's we don't have the conclusive anything yet but um, what does the data suggest is the next thing to look at? Yeah, um, 
So the the ways that people are trying to deal with this is by um, modifying the molecule to take off the trip. Mm. The problem with that idea is that it's a different drug. You know, I mean, everybody wants to think it's the same drug, but it's effectively a different drug when you do that. Now, it could be a totally effective drug, and if they modify the molecule, if they mo- modify the drug and it still works just as well without the trip, then you can make the argument that the trip isn't necessary. If it doesn't work as well, then you're it's kind of unclear, mm. right? Um, you know, the other way to do it, which is a way that we're exploring, is can you put drug in just in specific brain regions without putting it in other brain regions? Now, injecting directly, Sounds you have to have surgery and there's all this problems with that. But there's a guy... Uh, Rage Ron that I'm working with at Stanford who's developed a tech where he can package drug into a nanoparticle cage. So you can inject the drug sitting in these kind of cages and then you they, they just, just like eventually urinate it out or whatever and you never, the drug never does anything because it's been bound into this cage the whole time. Mm-hmm. But if you use ultrasound as a form of stimulation because you can use a focused form of ultrasound, just like the diagnostic ultrasound, but you yeah. can focus it to a point. If you focus it to a point, I mean, say, you know, area of blood flow in the brain, you know, vessels carrying the drug, it will warp the cage and let the drug out for a second. But only in the specific That's region right. of the brain that you hit it with. Wow. Right. That is clever. Yeah, and, and and what's cool about that is it allows you to ask the question of necessary and specific and all of that. Mm. So we're going to release ketamine into the cingulate. Um, into a cingulate? In, into the anterior cingulate. So oh, same the, idea. Cage it up, Yeah. hit it when it hits this part of the brain, uh-huh. and yeah. see what happens. Yeah, and, and wow. we're looking at pain changes because pain is like, um, really nicely you know measured in the sense that you can have an acute you know, anti-pain effect. Um, mm. whereas like the, you know, the longer term, you know, depression effects or whatever, it's a little bit harder to, to kind of measure that. So if we're going to measure pain first and then the, you know, so that's the primary question, can we reduce pain? But relatedly, do they have any sort of, you know, dissociation from the ketamine, mm. you know, and start to be able to use, you know, specific drug release to do mapping experiments and you can do that with any psychedelic with ketamine and so is this is putting the drug in this brain region um sufficient to produce all the therapeutic effects without causing the psychological effects or do you just get a piece of it suggesting that you and then you put you find you know this one contributes 30 percent, 33 percent. this one contributes 33 percent. this one contributes 33 percent to the total you put it in all three of those regions if you if you do have the psychological effect, then maybe you can't divorce them. If you don't have it, um, then you can, you know? And so that's another way of dealing with it. But it's it's a really hard question, and it's going to take 10 years to figure out that question. I think, you know, in the short term, you know, my thing is pragmatics and just having tools and all that. And so just trying to just trying to test it with this with a trip knowing that it makes it a lot harder to you know to scale that you know because you have to have a lot more you know therapeutic involvement and all of that to be able to deal with a lot of the content 
what people say with Ibogaine is that they um, they have this life review. Actually, about 80% of people experience um, a life review on Ibogaine. And what that is is an autobiographical replaying of past emotionally relevant memories, some of which aren't even really known to be relevant. They just end up being hmm. critical moments. Which is so things you wouldn't expect pop up. Yeah, which makes this really interesting and gets back to the, your question about high tech. And so, you know, this is a drug that marches you through all the emotionally relevant parts of your life. You have an intuition. You're seeing this as a third party. You have an intuition of what you thought and felt at that moment. You have an intuition of what the other person or people felt or thought at that moment. You have a re-evaluation of that total situation and mm. then a reconsolidation. Because every time you bring up a memory, you reconsolidate it, as yeah. you know. And this drug for 30 hours marches you through all of these. Yep. Jesus. And at the end of it, people say they've completely sorted, you know, all of that content. And they're now in a place where they've they kind of have approached it in a totally different way. So um with Ibogaine specifically. Are has anybody put words to what the the vibe of the recontextualization is? So with like MDMA, it makes you feel like you love yeah, it's everyone actually. But from what I've heard, I began like they say it's it's hard, it's yeah. work. It's hard, it's work. Uh, yeah. What does that mean exactly? So no matter what sort of emotional thing yeah. you're you're looking at, it's just yeah. I no longer feel emotionally charged yeah. about it. And so now from a neutral perspective, I'm gonna reconsolidate it with a neutral sense. It's a neutral stance, but it can be very emotionally it can be very emotion inducing because you're not pro Tom in the Whoa, the, that's weird. Right. And so, so I, I am sort of standing outside myself mm -hmm. and I'm perfectly willing to say you were an asshole in that moment. Yeah. But so, like, yeah. it's okay, but you need to recognize where to file that appropriately. Yeah. So your example earlier about the note to yourself when you were arguing mm -hmm. with your wife on Saturdays, that, that almost is kind of a similar sort of idea, right? Is that in some ways you you emulated that you were able to kind of see that you're going to do this your wife's going to have this feeling and if you just give her this note then you know and so it's like that right it's like this idea that that you're you're able to go into that and you may even and I'm making this up you know you may even go into that and be like man I shouldn't even have been mad about that I you know the only reason why she's saying any of that is because of this other thing that I did or, you know, or whatever, right? Or some other scenario. Mm. But it's like, you're able to see that. You're also able to kind of intuit the other person's perspective. And I mean, who knows how any of this works in a way that like, they can then, their kind of re reasoning is contextualized for you. And then you have this moment for some people and why it can be hard. So you have to face the hard reality that the way that, to your point, the perception of the map of reality that you're operating on wasn't the territory at all right and that the way that you were seeing that event go down was totally through a lens that was the sort of kind of perceptual disturbances that we see the world through and and then operating off of that information that was inherently flawed 
right? And and it seems to allow for folks to kind of re-evaluate all of that and and with that establish greater control and choice because you're you you kind of have a better calibration of the world like you know this idea of the map isn't the territory like the closer your map is to the territory the more inherent control you have because you have a better sense of if i walk this way there is going to be land or there's going to be water or whatever you know and i think for a lot of us part of what goes wrong is my map is off enough to where i thought you know i was driving my car on the road <laughs> the beach or whatever you know you know, as a, as a metaphor. Right. And, um, and I think that we do that all the time with our own perceptions of what's going on with reality and the people that we're interacting with. And so it seems like if you, if you hear all the anecdotes, it seems like what it does is it really gives you a better calibration and that, but that calibration is inherently hard because you have to face the, the truth that you were wrong. Whereas I think with MDMA, it's much more, to your point, it's much more of like just a pure loving acceptance that your map isn't right, but it's okay. And in some ways, both of those are highly useful and therapeutic, right? Like you you kind of have to hold both of those that like my map is wrong and I have to face it at some point, but I also have to love myself and accept myself for having a miscalibrated map because it's probably due to something that happened in my childhood that shifted my ability to see it or something that happened in my whatever, like some trauma that I experienced in my early adulthood or whatever it is, you know, right? Like that's, that's inherently like the, the empath, the empathic part. And I think you have to have both of those, but, but yeah, that's definitely what, that's definitely what the Ibogaine seems to do is it seems to kind of write a bunch of views and take you down a journey. And, um, it's it's pretty fascinating that it ends up being these elite fighters, right? Which in in retrospect makes total sense why they'd be really in droves going down there because they're not worried about a one in three hundred. I mean, it's it's not really probably one in three hundred for those guys because none of them have had a problem. A thousand of them have been down there, but you know, in theory, one in three hundred risk of of death. You know, they went into war zones that were a higher risk for them than that mm. you know and and they see this as an exit out of the kind of constant turmoil yeah i was going to say that that would be my gut instinct as to why navy seals and i think it was you that i've heard speak about this but i definitely heard somebody speak about this you know you can imagine a navy seal they're in a combat zone they do something it goes wrong they accidentally kill a child or friendly yeah. fire or whatever sure. and now that's a part of your mental map of who you are as a person and yep. that's just tearing your guts out every yep. day every night that's right and to be able to go do this thing that allows you to file it away properly yep. because as you were describing this the thing that it makes me think of is um time heals all wounds now, what that phrase is getting at is that when you sleep, uh, part of the memory consolidation process is to strip away the emotional charge yep. of that memory and file yep. it away neutrally. But if for some reason you're locked in a PTSD-like cycle, that doesn't happen. Yep. And so you're, you're constantly reliving that emotion yep. with the same level of emotional salience as when it first happened, which I cannot imagine the hell that that would be if the worst things that have ever happened to me or God forbid I had done something that was horrendous 
and which honestly for me anyway would be worse and then i just living that at the same volume every time every time every time and so if i begin and obviously i'm pure speculation here but if i begin works to sort of rapidly do what time is supposed to do which is strip that emotion away like if if life sleep does it slowly you know over weeks months years depending on how intense this thing is and i begin does it over 30 hours like suddenly you get why people would be willing to go do that difficult work. The part that I struggled to wrap my head around is why it's tied to addiction. Like those seem like two very different things. I think of maybe erroneously, I think of addiction as being a biological thing where my body has gone. I, I have adjusted all of my internal levels to expect heroin, cocaine, whatever. And why all of a sudden, if I don't get that, oh, we're good, no problem. But you know, a day before, if I didn't get it, I was vomiting, I was yeah. shaking and sweating. Well, and you yes. have to think about what you know, Sigabor Mate, uh, who's he's worked, been on the show, yeah. So, uh, he um, worked with a lot of addicted individuals in Vancouver. Yeah, he, his view, which is interesting, and I think it's probably right, is that there's an there's an underlying trauma driving. You know, particularly if you think about opiates, you know, opiates in the very short term put people in a state of of reduced pain, not just physical pain, but emotional pain. And going back to the ketamine story, right, where like you need an opiate agonism to have an antidepressant effect from ketamine, right? So, so this idea that you know substances actually do have a, a very immediate effect that is in the right direction. The problem with these same substances, they actually go totally in the opposite direction and create a big problem with chronic use, you know? And so, you know, acute use of, of say buprenorphine, what? Um, it, which, is, which is a, one of the opiates, it's, it's the active ingredient in Suboxone, the kind of one of the drugs that, that we use for, for taking people off of opiates, but it, it's itself an opiate. And so if you give buprenorphine, you can have an antidepressant effect. If you give oxycodone chronically, you can produce more treatment-resistant depression. You can actually make people more treatment-resistant. So it works for a minute, but then it becomes a problem. But then it becomes a problem. And so, you know, there's a there's a pretty consistent finding that people that have depression before major exposure to opiates or PTSD um, have a higher risk of converting to opiate use disorder. Um, I had a study I, I tried to get NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse, to pay for um, you know, four or five years ago with our neurostimulation approach, um, where we were, we were saying, we're going to treat these depressed individuals right before they go and get a total knee, total hip Mm. replacement, because it's incredibly painful. And in those people, if they're depressed, they have like a 2.6 times the amount of opiates they're using by day three. Whoa. Compared to non-depressed people. Just being depressed makes you need more opiate to get the effect. To, to, yeah, 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 right. And so, I, because physical and emotional pain are processed in the same part of the brain, in the singular. Yep, that's so <laughs> interesting, man. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And so, I and, and then our, you know our stimulation approach is targeted in the singular that we were talking about earlier, right? So you and you can actually release endogenous opiates mm. with stem. So it was this idea that we could, what we were talking about earlier, prophylax against. Um, one psychiatric condition by treating another. And so I said, let's treat the depression. They go and do the surgery. And then um, we see if we can, in the active group, knock down the amount of opiates they're using compared to the sham mm. group. 
for the goal of trying to trying to treat the depression and, and reduce uh, the risk, just like anesthesiologists do for other things. You don't go into surgery until your heart's good and until your vessels are good. They won't right. let you, you know, and so it's this idea of could you do a pre-surgical risk reduction and it gives you a model for actually preventing a future addiction. Hmm. Um, that was a too, seemingly a too radical idea at that time for NIDA. I think it was having a, a little bit of a hard time kind of conceptualizing you know, like, are you treating, you're not treating an addiction, you're treating depression, you're applying to night, you know? And so it's where I think it gets a little bit complicated, you know? That's one of those things that really bums me out because if it works and like, I get, we don't think of them as being connected, but if they are connected, then you need to address it. And so, especially when you think about how many people end up getting addicted to opioids because they were put on legitimate pain medication to begin with, and then it turns into an addiction and then they can't shake it. And so uh, a yeah. knee surgery becomes a, a prison stint for opioid addiction. That's right. Man, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, I think we're getting to a place now where hopefully we can start thinking about that. I mean, the ideal world is we we just don't we we don't give somebody an opiate or we concurrently treat them if they need to have an opiate with something that essentially fixes the underlying problem that would that would cause the risk you know profile but but yeah i mean i think getting back to your original question about ibogaine the the reason why it makes sense at a level is because of the gdnf thing but also the the mouse self administration thing i was talking about earlier but also that combo of that and that they're addressing some of the pain right some of that inherent pain from some of the trauma that somebody like Gabor Mate would talk about that probably drove them to that place in the, you know, to begin with. Right. Um, and, uh, because not everybody, you can give somebody fentanyl and then never want fentanyl again, you know, some people hate it or whatever. Right. And so it's this idea that you, you may be people that keep seeking it, maybe tapping into, actually a system that doesn't need fentanyl but needs something else that fentanyl is acting on right like neurostimulation like maybe like you know some of these psychedelic you know drugs maybe like ketamine whatever it is and uh it gives us clues about what the circuitry is and what the problem could be the underlying uh, you know initial problem could be um but it's also why i think we've got to pour a lot more money into researching these things like we really you've gotten very far in cancer biology and cancer treatments over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, right? We can, you know, we can treat previously untreatable cancers and we, we have drugs, you know, we even have ways of modifying the immune system to attack cancer now. And, you know, recent Nobel prize a couple of years ago um, for somebody on that one. Um, and um, we know a lot about the heart. But, but if you look at the federal dollars that have gone into brain conditions, particularly into psychiatric conditions, it's a lot less. But, but depression is the most disabling condition worldwide. You know, a lot of these things are. And so if by we- By what metric? Um, by like, you know, standard disability scores. You know, so you can take- I can't get out of bed. I can't go to work. Yeah, right. that's a, yeah I can't think through this thing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and if you, if you look to like our, you know, our conversation an hour ago around the cardiac thing and- 
you know, if you if you ask a cardiac patient just had a heart attack, what's and, and they're having depression, what's the worst part of what's going on with you? They're going to tell you it's depression. Take a Parkinson's patient with new Parkinson's, and they've got all their shaking and all this stuff, and, and they're depressed. And you ask them, what's the worst part of your Parkinson's? It's the depression. Jesus, right? Depression is comorbid with almost everything, maybe everything, and it's um, and it makes everything that it touches worse. Right. If you have depression and you just had an, uh, a surgery, your wound healing is going to be a day delayed compared to people that aren't depressed. When it comes to platforms that will help you run a business, there is no shortage of options on the market. But if you want to use the best, most advanced, and most efficient platform out there, you need to be using Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. With award-winning customer service, the internet's highest converting checkout page, and a suite of integrated AI tools. Tools, Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy to start, run, and grow a business. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly use Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash impact right now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100 
thousand miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. That's banana. I mean, I after what you told me about the heart, I should not be surprised, but I didn't know that. Yep. That's banana. So depression makes you need more opiates. It slows down your healing and it increases your risk of heart attack. Does it increase your risk of cancer or other um, chronic diseases? The, the cancer story has been more inconclusive, okay. you know, but there's a list, um, there's a recent meta-analysis and there was a list of risks. I mean, there was one paper published in the American, in the American Academy, um, the, the, the Green Journal of Neurology and, um, and depression increases your risk, your depression in your 30s and 40s increases your risk of having Parkinson's later in life. Jesus Christ, man. And then Parkinson's increases your risk of depression, just like the cardiac thing, right? Mm. So depression makes literally everything worse and produces a risk for you. And so the idea that we're not putting like an insane amount of federal funding into understanding what depression is and answering many of these great questions Mm. that you've asked around what's causal and what drives what and how's the gut and the brain related and how's diet, all that stuff needs to be understood in a deep way, probably with machine learning and AI embedded in those questions. But you need, you need like a dense amount of money to be able to figure out, uh, figure out how to do that, you know, and like all of our, you know, our um, accelerated stimulation approach that, you know, well, looks like we'll ultimately end up on the inpatient unit and treat psychiatric emergencies. We had we have a lot of federal support and a lot of federal funding now, and very thankful for that. Um, the original work was grassroots um, donor funding, wow. you know, and so people that had personal. Ex- I'm guessing, obviously, but people that had personal experience that are like, members. you can make this as legal as you want. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the, you know, a lot of the really really early early stage mental illness psychiatry kind of experimental therapeutics work at least that we've done has been philanthropy funded and a a good bit of my portfolio for the lab is from um you know private donors with a whole lot of means that come in and they say you know my my kid or my parent or my spouse or whatever is suffering and there's just not anything for this. Mm. That's how we got into the Ibogaine work. You know, that's how we got into the accelerated stimulation work and our like application and other indications, you know, how we're getting into some of the, like the direct brain recording work. It's all philanthropy funded. And, and, you know, really where the federal agencies come in is in that, you know, in many, many cases in that second step, once we have a signal to kind of come in and, and expand the effect, but you know, in their defense, they've got a limited budget, you know, so they really need to, to invest in things that are somewhat de-risked. And if societally we were able to put, you know, as much money proportionally based off of your question of these disability scores, so the most disabling things get the most federal money to 
to kind of explore and to do really, really moonshot sorts of things where it's really early and fund it from the get-go, then we would know a lot more about this. And so the hope is, is that this generation of, of teenagers and folks in their early 20s seem to really embrace therapy and the kind of, you know, having a di- mental illness, having a psychiatric diagnosis, having even subsyndromal symptoms and needing a therapist and that sort of thing. And as we like destigmatize this stuff and approach it from a different lens, and, you know, in the case of psychedelics, that in and of itself gets destigmatized, I think that, um, we're going to make a lot more headway. And and my prediction is, you know, and by 20, 2040 probably or something, we'll be able to have a decent amount of um, control over these illnesses. We'll be able to, people will be able to come in and we'll, you know, we'll be able to, to kind of stratify them and we'll be able to make, you know, decently um, predictive therapeutic decisions on them and, and, have a bigger part of the pie that's responding because if you look at the the numbers for any given oral antidepressant working it's not very good no. you know it's much less than a coin flip you know and so being able Oof. yeah for the standard oral antidepressants it's it's not not great right so you end up iterating across a bunch of different drugs to get to a point where where they're working you know some of these rapid acting drugs ketamine story, you know, what we're doing with neuromodulation, a lot of the psychedelic work looks better than that, right? Mm. And that's why people are willing to accept it because, um, you know, people, whether it be military or, or civilian government or whatever it is, you know, everybody's recognizes it's such a big problem. Like we can't have these preconceived notions of this is a good or a bad thing or whatever. It's like, does it work or not? And if it does, let's add it to the list, you know? And, uh, and I like that cause that's the way I, I think about it. So mm. that's incredible. What do you think about the fact that all of this, like when you were talking about Ibogaine specifically, you know, the profundity of that, it auto happens that you will start cycling through your memories, that it, it creates a, an environment that is useful, that allows mm-hmm. people to deal with the most traumatic things ever that it, and this part I know is hypothesis, but the fact that it can help with addiction potentially just from going, oh, that thing that you've been trying to cover up or run away from or whatever, just by putting that in the right context in your brain, using whatever mechanisms the brain already has, but you didn't have access to before, um, just by putting that in its right file folder and removing the emotion from it, you no longer need heroin, cocaine, whatever, that it comes from a root yeah. Like that yeah. just what, what, yeah. like that is from a co-evolution perspective. I'm just like, I'm sorry. What? Like, yeah. huh? Yeah. Yeah. It, no, it's, it, it, and I argue exactly what you said, but with the kind of profound neurotrophic kind of plasticity effects, probably concurrent. Right. And that's why I think such a high tech sort of idea that it marches you through all these psychological things and it has the kind of biology change that are that's happening concurrently you know my view and i've said this publicly is i I think you could give you know the major drug companies 10 billion dollars 100 billion whatever whatever it is and say make a drug that works like ibogaine but ibogaine didn't in in theory ibogaine never existed yeah yeah and they they didn't have anything to work off of you know nobody can make nobody it's not their fault like we we don't 
have the neuroscience to understand what this is doing at all. Like, why would it produce these very characteristic, um, you know, you know, processes in like the I mean, about 80%, the vast majority of people, but it gets into that statement I said earlier, right. Is that we, we end up like evaluating technology based off of Moore's law. Mm. You know, we, we use, we use computer think to evaluate everything else, you know? And I think that, I think that you you can't kind of do that with the psychedelics. You can't use well whatever is the most you know chronologically new has to be the most advanced. I think I think that you have to use a different kind of what's the most what has the most inherent complexity, you know, um, in a good way. Like what's kind of in this case therapeutic complexity to evaluate it. But it's something like that, and it's. Um, it's hard to relay that kind of concept because obviously we're so programmed to get the iPhone 50 or whatever, you know, like we're so programmed to get the next MacBook. I mean, we just don't even think about it. Like we just know that the next iPhone is better than the last one, you know? And Mm -hmm. so chronological time ends up being like, you know, but I think, uh, I think for these, these technologies, right. It's more about what does it do? And, um, you know, all the psychedelics at a level, but I think particularly I began, man, I mean, how, how does that even work? You know? And, uh, and it's, it's interesting. So it is very interesting. Is anybody looking at experimenting directly with, um, glial derived neurotrophic factor? There, there's been some, there was some work with trying to do some of that for Parkinson's back in the day, uh, where actually they were doing like burr holes and like surgeries and injecting it into into the because you can't digest it in an oral form you know ibogaine is the only way to kind of have those effects mm. which obviously that was off limits 15 years ago right. um but have those effects without you know essentially a direct injection and so um the study was inconclusive i think the the problem probably it from my perspective was dose right you give one one injection of this, it's not going to necessarily be enough to take somebody who's so far down the pipe for having full-blown Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. So they're willing to do brain surgery to try to treat it to then, you know, um, evaluating it. It, It'd be interesting if you could, you know, use an Ibogaine like substance, you know, even in Parkinson's, right. Where you, um, you know, you had something, you know, maybe without all the cardiac risk or something, we had something that could upregulate your, um, you know, your gli- your glial derived neurotrophic factor and kind of, you know, ask the question of whether this could restore, you know, dopamine neuron function. You know, that that's where the similarity is between Parkinson's and addiction, is that you know both have um, an effect on the dopamine system, right? In the case of Parkinson's, it's a direct hit and ge- degeneration of the nigro, which feeds up to a lot of the motor parts of um, the dopamine system. And then um, the addiction acts on the ventral tegmental area, nucleus accumbens reward system. But, you know, these are both dopamine population, dopamine neuron populations. And so, yeah, a lot of, you know, an area that needs a lot more research and a lot more exploration to really understand it. But, but there's, you know, there's a good amount of basic science going on now. I'll be interested to see if I had to guess that there may also be some 
amount of like the plant compound is so intricately evolved essentially to have a bunch of different things happening at the same time so that you get the effect. Like I know when you look at ayahuasca, which is multiple things put together and how on God's green earth, someone figured out exactly how you have to prep this plant and that plant and put them together to get this effect. And that one sort of works with the other. You were talking earlier about, you know, there's, there's a place where serotonin, if you can break the cell membrane down enough that the serotonin can get in, then it can have an impact. And so, you know, how much of Ibogaine or any of these other drugs, if you isolate the thing you think is doing the vast majority of the work, but maybe in reality, it's only doing 80% of the work and that you actually do get additional benefits from the 20% of the other, you know, whatever's that come in that route or, you know, that sort of prime the system to receive it. Yeah. That's also interesting, but man, does it let you know that nature is complex. It is. I mean, I I think I had a it was a quote, and I'm I'm probably I'm probably underestimating, but I think it's like ten thousand plant species in the Amazon. Jesus. You know, it could be more than that, but I'm you, sure more. Yeah, if it, you know, let's say it's ten thousand, it maybe it probably is more than that. You know, the number of combinations and iterations and their poisonous ones. I mean, it's it's just it's hard to conceive of exactly what you said in the case of ayahuasca and and really like you almost have to have a knowledge right that these two things this one thing is blocking the gi breakdown of this other thing you know in the case of of the reversible monoamine oxidase inhibitor piece that then allows for the the dmt to get into the brain um but yeah it's you know the iboga tree there's not it's a root bark, you know, they have to kind of, if you watch the buiti, they're like digging it up. Like there's not like a clear predator. I mean, it's, it's, mm. it's a very, um, it's a very curious kind of anthropological question, kind of neuroanthropological question around like, what is going on with all that, you know? And people have written about it, you know, and anthropologists have talked about it, but it's, it's not, it's not clear, you know, and I think that I, I actually think there's probably some real value to, you know, investing some money and that would probably be NSF or somebody like that, but investing some money into really trying to understand why humans were ever doing this to, to begin with. Right. I mean, we've, yeah, I think Western culture, you know, with the Mayans and with like coming into central and South America and just, kind of imposing in that time Christianity and all that onto those groups. And then, you know, kind of ignoring a lot of those, those traditions and, you know, kind of re-embracing and asking, you know, if we landed on Mars or whatever it was and saw, you know, an alien species doing this, we'd spend a whole lot of money trying to figure out why they were doing it. So why don't we go in and say, in a really deep way, like, why were the Native Americans doing this? Why were the Central and South Americans doing this? What is the reason why they were doing it? It was probably, there's probably, and it's unlikely that it's the same reason why we habitually drink alcohol. Uh, that'd be my view, you know. Interesting. For me, they seem, uh, they're the same, uh, obviously guessing, the same evolutionary branch. One is elevated, one is a lot more fun. So when I think about um, 
would I rather do Ibogaine or MDMA? I'd rather do MDMA. Yeah, sure. And especially if, hey, Tom, you have these uh, traumatic experiences. There are two ways that I can put them away. You can confront it for 30 hours and like really contend with it, uh, put it away, and then you're going to be fine. Or uh, you can have a great time, look at it from a place of love and just overwhelming joy and everything's okay. Also put it away and be fine long-term and be like, uh, word, I'll take the the love one. Thank you very much. And yeah. so alcohol for me anyway, it makes me feel like I'm suppressing the urge to dance on a table, but it's brutal on my body. So I yeah. almost never do it. Yeah. Um, if there were no side effects, like if if I only experienced the part when I was drunk, I, I would drink. <laughs> like it's fun. Okay. So I get how they're, to me, they're both riding on the back of, uh, I'm going to modulate your neurochemistry. You're going to go on a, a chemical ride is how I think about it. Yeah. Again, it might be circuitry, but you're going to go on this ride of these things we call emotions are fun. Like you go to a movie, even if it's a yeah. sad movie or a scary movie, you like, again, controlled to yeah. your point, you like the controlled experience of this. Yeah. So while I would not want to truly relive the trauma, there is something about, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you a demon but it's in a controlled fashion yeah. in that you can, you know, have people around you touching your hand, everything's okay. You know, so I, I think it, it makes sense to me that the, the more intense ones are going to um, propagate nested inside of a, I'll shorten it to shamanistic yeah. tradition yeah. to where it, this is, this is a ritual. This is not to be taken lightly. Yeah. Whereas something like alcohol is going to propagate. It's like just a fun thing that you can do. You can take it a little bit and it makes you feel a little fun or you can really push it. And then look, you're going to suffer for a day. But if there's no way, especially back in the day for you to track that, oh, this has long-term yeah. consequences, yeah. that it feels as close to cake and eating it too, as you're going to get. In fact, the one that feels even closer to your cake and eating it too is marijuana. Yeah. Tell, I don't know if you've looked at this, but like what I think people give, I'm really going to make people mad now. I think people give marijuana free pass. I don't understand. If yeah. you're if you're taking a drug, cool, trade-off. I'm totally for it. Like yeah. if, if it's worth it to you for the trade-off, just seems impossible. But when I do it, I don't feel bad the next day at yeah. all. I'm yeah. just like, oh, cool. But it like, if I... So one I have noticed, I don't do it often, but I do it more than I drink. Yeah. And I didn't use to. So for anybody that's listened yeah. to me for a long time, um, I have done it more frequently recently because I have noticed that it has a tremendous impact on my enjoyment of sex. So that that, that has been a fun discovery. Yeah. Um, but I've done both smoked and edible. Again, yeah. I don't do it frequently, but... Um, Smoking, I can sort of feel the problem coming on. So I have a much easier time of yeah. not overdoing it. But with edibles, um, again, I'm I'm a very cautious person. So I've never been like, I know some people had really bad experiences. I have not. But it did get to the point where I was trying to watch a movie and I'm like, I can't make like even the sentences add up. Yeah. So like I just watched an hour and a half of this movie. I have no idea what happened. So for something like that, I just assume like there is some knock on effect here. You can't just play with this stuff and not have some sort of complication down the road. Well, I think the base question that I, and you, and you're kind of, I think you're, you're alluding to it in a way. The base question that I have asked is this question of, you know, or even to back up a little bit, do people, does everybody have an addiction? And what I mean broadly is, 
and addic- behavioral addictions, substance addictions, control addictions, you know, and, and I'd argue that, that probably, right? Like probably everybody has something, right? Whether it be like caffeine or control or, you know, repetitive behaviors or whatever it is, you know, and if everybody's reward, and it's not really an addiction in that sense, what it is is your reward system is primed to repeat behaviors that are reinforcing, right? And so um, for some people like me, you know, I've historically been like a very serious extreme sports guy, like kite surf and big waves. And if it's not a big enough wave, it's not exciting enough. And, Whoa, how big wave are we talking? Yeah, like uh, North Shore of Maui Whoa. and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I was a big martial artist and fought in, in Taekwondo fights, you know, all over the world hmm. in my 20s and stuff. And so, you know, and, and I'd argue that that's really just, it's just really sensation-seeking behavior at a, at a level, right? And we all do it, you know, in one way or another, right? And so... If that's the case, then do we do we end up sublimating certain rewarding behaviors that may end up being in the extreme, you know, kind of um, ends addict what we call addictions? But do we sublimate, um, you know, certain behaviors for some core set of practices or behaviors or whatever that? may balance us or put us centralize us or whatever. Right. And so people have argued that for a long time, like people that do yoga, argue yoga, people that are hardcore um, meditators argue that, you know, and there's, there's like a, a frame that, you know, if, if these drugs like psilocybin and, and Ibogaine and others, what the end result ends up being is a loss of addiction because they're not themselves addictive, which is, I think, the fundamental first question. If they're not themselves addictive, and there's a loss of an addiction, it kind of it's curious, right? Of of whereas the substance you're talking about, certainly cannabis. There's there's cannabis cannabis use disorder. Certainly there's a you know alcohol problem, obviously. And so are those sublimations of other habitual behaviors that end up being kind of culturally. Um, embedded, you know, and back to the anthropological thing, why do certain cultures, you know, ceremonially, you know, as a sacrament, take psychedelics and do those cultures, and we don't know enough about this, but do those cultures not have as much in the way of alcohol problems, of nicotine problems, of all that, because, because maybe it's getting to that core, you know, core kind of 5-HT2A receptor um, that kind of core circuitry modulation. And, um, you know, it's, a, it's an open question. You know, it's one that we don't really have an answer to, but one we probably should, because if these are all just idiosyncratic behaviors that humans do with certain environments and certain plants, and then, it's, then it just happens to be idiosyncratic drugs that we're using randomly mm. to drive behaviors down that we don't want to have, Versus the other idea, which is that there's some core thing that some cultures did and that, that kept that culture in a certain domain. And then you you don't have that. And then all of a sudden other cultures have a problem. You introduce drug A from culture A to drug B. And all of a sudden you're seeing all these kind of vast therapeutic effects. Maybe it's because 
drug A, dr culture A had it sorted, culture B didn't, you right. know, and, uh, and, and it's, it's a hard, it's a very hard thing to answer, but it's one that I think is really interesting, you know, um, that, that maybe a lot of it's just sublimation. Maybe drinking is just a sublimation of an instinct to do something else. Mm. As someone who is constantly learning new information and skills, I've found some tricks to most effectively and efficiently retain and remember that information. And one of the keys to this process is actively engaging with the content. You have to use it. And when it comes to learning a new language, the most efficient app out there is Babbel. With Babbel's revolutionary conversation-based approach, learning a new language is both efficient and effective. With quick, 10-minute lessons rooted in real-life situations, you can start actually speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Take it from somebody who has struggled mightily to learn Greek to impress my beloved wife and my in-laws. I really wish Babbel had existed back then. It would have helped so much. So I highly encourage you guys to check out Babbel today and take advantage of the special deal for Impact Theory listeners right now. Get 55% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash impact theory. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash impact theory. And that's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Again, slash impact theory. Rules and restrictions may apply. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Man, drugs are fascinating. I want to ask you a question. You made reference to it earlier and do you think that we have a soul that is separate from our physiology? You refer to it as mind something else, mind brain. Well, I think there's there's brain, there's mind as we think about it, and there's probably self, you know? Um, this gets out of like a scientific statement now. This is just my personal beliefs, right? And so 
<clears throat> you know, um, I, I think that there's this, you know, and a lot of a lot of meditation practitioners believe this is a there's a thought stream that is mind, and many people, their mind and their self are fused, and they see mind and self as the same thing. Like we can ignore brain for a second. I can get back to that, but mind and self are and so. And you kind of pointed to this earlier. You said, you know, once you realized that the anxiety was just happening, it was physiological, then you could kind of get yourself away from it, right? And distance yourself from it. And I think what you're doing there is you're having that kind of theory theory of mind that your mind and yourself aren't the same thing and that you can see your mind do all of this stuff and you can be an observer of it from self and not act on it you know but for a fair amount of people mind and self are totally <laughs> totally fused and i think that's really where a lot of a lot of the problems are and then and then then you get this other layer of brain right brain being essentially the organ that you know mind um, um is emergent from and probably self is emergent from too right but but it's you know so mind emerges from brain you can have a, an insult like a stroke like we talked about and have depression and have no reason why you'd be depressed but you know mind and, and um you know mind is emergent from brain just like blood flow is emergent from your heart and so um if your heart if your blood isn't flowing it's because your heart isn't pumping so you got a structure but then you've got this emergent property and i think that um i think that part of you know, part of mindfulness practices is to teach people how to, you know, in this kind of mind self, you know, dichotomy to be able to distance yourself from your thought stream. Psychedelics definitely seem to do that. I actually think that brain stimulation can do it through the brain because you're, if you can shut down the brain regions that are emerging the mind, then yourself is left alone in many ways. Wow. So you're saying the self would still survive. So there, there is oh, an yeah. observer, even as you, the rest of you sort of goes offline. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say you go offline. I'd say your mind goes offline. You're, you're, you're like worrying mind or whatever it is. Right. And so we had a couple people in our St. trials where they got well on Tuesday we kept treating, so there was zero on Tuesday, and we just kept treating them. On Thursday, they came in and they said, hey, the weirdest thing happened last night. I was driving home from, um, you know, from treatment or whatever, and um, I uh, I saw the beach, and I just decided to go sit on the beach. I never do that, but I just decided to go sit on the beach. And then and then for like an hour, I was just like totally present in the present moment. And I read about this in my like mindfulness course or whatever, you know, and they're like, and I like looked it up after and I was like, I think I had like this mindful experience or whatever. And you, you know, you hear one person say that as a scientist, you're like, okay, that's great for you. I don't really know what that means. Right. And you have an, an, you know, when you have five or six people and you're not telling anyone that anybody else is telling you this and they're all coming to you with this. And it's always like they go through euthymia, like they're totally nothing. They're zeroed out. On Tuesday, and we have. Did you say euthymia? Yeah, like normal mood. Got it. That's a fancy word. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Euthymia. I've never heard that word. Before. Yeah, sorry. Uh, they go through, like, basically zeroed out depressive symptoms, and when they transit through it, if you keep treating them, they get into these, 
these places and it's the minority of people like it's only people that are you know actually less typically less treatment resistant it doesn't take them the whole week to get there and then by thursday or friday they're telling you this and and you see this post psychedelic it's not during the psychedelic but it's the day or two after really clear right and it's like your thinking mind this computer that you've got running that's I need to do a grocery shopping. I need to do this. Like I better not, you know, do this or this is going to happen or whatever. That's like kind of stuck in the past future thinking kind of goes away. And what's left is you, right? It's you being able to be like mindful and present, you know, which is the way that many of the Buddhist meditators say that they get there too, right? Without any of this other stuff, right? But it's this idea that you can just be, present and be here and be able to appreciate the now and um and really the mind is just a tool to like deal with the world right but it's not it's not you like it's your ability to you know make money or drive your car or do whatever you need to do to get to do the things that you your the self wants to do and i think i think that to me as like a personal goal is spiritual goal that people have or whatever um, as well as potentially a scientific goal, right. Is important to understand because I've never had anybody that I've, I've observed in that space. Who's like, I don't like this. Like, I don't want to like get me out of this, like being present thing. I want to go back to being worried again or whatever. Everybody feels like they like took a weight off and they're relieved of, it. you know, like, now I don't have to deal with all that. I'm just able to like be here, you know? And, um, you know, I think that's, uh, it's an interesting goal and, and trying to understand what that is, you know, from a physiologic perspective would be helpful because it may be a therapeutic goal, you know, may ultimately be a therapeutic goal, not just a scale saying the person's only, you know, minimally symptomatic, which is the way that we think about it now, but actually like that they, they can be present, you know? Now, does that imply to you that there is a part of you that can't be touched through brain damage or death? Um, Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great question. We don't have tools to, to, to understand it. Right. I mean, that's kind of the fundamental, the fundamental issue of all of that. Right. And it's, and these are, these are extremely hard experiments to do, Mm. you know, but it's this question of, is there a way to to separate it? Because you'd effectively have to separate it. I mean, I think that, you know, the the kind of base understanding and viewpoint that most neuroscientists in 2023 would say is that the you that you believe is you is all brain emergent, mm. right? There's nothing about you that isn't brain emergent. Right. And, and if I was testifying in front of Congress for like, you know, and they asked me that question, I'd say, you know, it's brain emergent, you know, um, if you asked me like Stan Groff, one of the, you know, the original, um, kind of OG, you know, psychedelic researchers, um, his answer is I've heard him say it is that, um, that the brain's more like an antenna, Right. Um, which is, you know, very different, a very different view. Right. Um, and, and we don't, we have no, 
we have no way of proving any of that or understanding any of that, right? Um, what everyone wants to believe is that that you are completely an emergent property of this brain, and there's nothing else about you that's outside of the skull. Um, you know, it, 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 you know, unless these things kind of float up into the heavens or something, it's it's hard to conceptualize of what happens how you take that view and then you you kind of like converge that view with a view of of any sort of religion which there are neuroscientists pretty senior ones at stanford that are also religious you know i haven't asked them this question but you know it's this question of like how do you kind of merge those views together so it's you know that's the base kind of we don't know and then to your your other point right you can knock out brain regions and you can dramatically change um behavior you can change uh personality you can change levels of consciousness and and so people who knew you would then say you're not the same person i used to know right and and so that that would argue towards the kind of brain centric the soul is just an emergent property of the brain the self is just another emergent property of the brain outside of mind or whatever that's hard. We don't have we don't have tools to sort it out, um, you know. And, and it's also hard because many of the 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 mechanisms that um, that are in place are kind of helping that system to re, to, to kind of self regulate. What goes in contrast to that is there are a number of patients who for instance, never had a musical ability in their life. They're a terrible singer. They didn't know how to play any instrument or whatever. And they get frontotemporal dementia. So they get they lost some prefrontal mm. cortex. And they have these spontaneous emergent musical vir- virtuosos, right? Which is inter- How do you interpret that? Because I have a strong interpretation of that. Oh, you do? Okay. But you know more about this than I uh, do. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's, yeah. I mean, there is, uh, I, will, I will just... I will follow that with another finding, which is kind of interesting, which if you take somebody that's learning how to sharpshoot and you knock out their prefrontal cortex, you can mm-hmm. actually make them sharpshoot better. Yes. And sometimes that system, you know, anxiety for sure, but that system may be, you know, having a net, actually fully functional, maybe having a detrimental effect to doing things that are much more physical and fluid and perceptual and not necessarily in the thinking domain. You know, and as a martial artist, to get back to what I was saying earlier, like you, you can't actually have a rational thought about being in a, you know, in a competitive fighting match, right? You, you're reacting in much shorter periods of time, right? You know, so some Don't of that think is a, kick, just yeah, kick, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So some of it ends up being like kind of memori- memorized and repetitive and instinctual, and maybe sh- sharpshooting is maybe, maybe in some ways music is you know but yeah i'd love to hear your so the way that transcranial magnetic stimulation made it onto my radar was um around the idea that i think it was a lab in australia would have people come in and say uh draw me a picture of a squirrel i can't draw just do it they draw a picture of the squirrel and then they would put tms on them hit them draw squirrel again and by knocking out a yeah. region of their brain, they could suddenly draw three or four times better. And they're like, what is happening? Yeah. And so 
my wife is is a world-class artist. She is oh, cool. unbelievable. And so when I watch her do her thing, I realize that she is she is seeing information that my brain filters out. Mm. So it isn't necessarily that she, I mean, obviously she's trained as well, yeah. but she, her and her sister drew something, her sister's older than her. They drew something each for their grandma and gave it to their grandma. And when they were young, so like a two year yeah. difference is gigantic at that yeah. age. And her grandmother took the two drawings and was like, well, it's no fair because Lisa's younger. Assuming Lisa's drawing was yeah. the bad one, but in reality, Lisa's drawing was the good one. So yeah. she's just had an ability forever. And so I remember one time she's drawing and I'm like, why are you spending time in that part of the drawing? Because she was doing it from a photo. I'm like, there's nothing in the photo. That part of the photo is completely blank. And she looked at me and she's like, what? And I'm like, that part of the photo is completely blank. She's like, are you joking? I'm like, what do you mean? And I was being sincere. I'm like, that part of the photo has no detail in it. What are you doing? Because I watched her spend like an hour on a part of the photo. That to me was solid white. And she was like, you really don't see detail in that? No, I don't. And so I was like, holy cow, you actually see detail. And then as I yeah. really sat and looked at it, I was like, I guess kind of. So my brain was just like, eh, close enough. Those are roughly the same, right? Move on. And so by, and your brain has to do that, right? If you were, if I was looking at you going, there's this many photons bouncing off yeah. of that part of your head, like, uh, you're never going to get anywhere. And so your brain is constantly saying, yeah. don't pay attention to this. Now, the interesting thing is that particular example is indicative of my entire personality. So part of the reason that like my wife will say to me all the time, I wish I had your brain yeah. because I won't hold on to things. So something could really upset me and I'm not joking five minutes later, I'll be like, oh, oh yeah. Because I get completely absorbed in whatever I'm doing yeah. and I just let go. Now, the problem is having a memory like that can be very frustrating because I will research the life out of something and yeah. remember 10% of it. Yeah. And I'm just like, how is this possible? Like I've encountered that same idea like four times and I just can't hang on to it. And so good in some areas, bad in others, but when I think about it, my brain is like not essential, not essential, not essential, yeah, not essential. And right. so it's just letting go of all that stuff. So with, with TMS, the thing that I found so interesting was that oftentimes your ability goes up, not down, as you knock a region offline. Because yep. I always thought it would be a stacking. Like you, you have to turn something on to get good at something versus turning something off. So I can see how, a, I mean, look, music is a little harder to explain, yeah, I won't right, lie. Right. But like, if there are, let's say, uh, that my brain is saying the tonal difference between two things is irrelevant. Yeah. And now I get yeah. a lesion, it's like, no, no, no. Those little differences make a big deal. And so now by knocking that area out, I'm suddenly able to pay attention to those two things. I could see, or even like how the left and right hemisphere are telling each other to shut up most of the time, which is why meditation is so interesting because as you relax, areas of your brain that normally are offline, suddenly they're, yep. they're not telling each other to be quiet. And so they can start talking to each other. So you'll get, you'll combine really weird ideas that I wouldn't have had when my brain is so busy saying not essential, not essential, not yeah. essential. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is super intriguing to me. Now for me, I thought you were going to be like, I'm a physicalist. And it took us a long time to get to the part where you said, if I was testifying that I would say uh, that it's brain derived. So is some part of you conflicted on whether that's all brain derived? I think that it's a, it's a difference between, you know, what you're trained and what you're 
you know, where the, you know, sparse, but, uh, available evidence is and what, where one's intuition is, right? You approach it with humility. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we just don't, and you know, it's like everything else. I mean, the big bang is a end of one event, right? I mean, that, these are the problems with a lot of these questions is they're very hard to, they're very hard to answer at the end of the day, you know? And I think that, um, that the tools that we have for answering them aren't that great, you know? And so, um, you know, being able to, have better tools to understand the nature of the brain, the nature of the mind, the nature of the self is the mind and the self, you know, the, the, the meditators will say that these are, can be fused together in people and can be separated. Is that really actually a thing? Is that a phenomenological thing? You're just tricking yourself into thinking that you're just tricking yourself. It, it's uh, as look, I have strong convictions loosely held. If data came up that was like, no, there really is like you are an antenna and this is all being broadcast from the Andromeda galaxy or heaven or whatever. Oh, okay, cool. I I have no need to be right, but I also, my brain just models everything I see and is like, "Ah, based on what I see and know, this is how I'm going to think about it for now. And again, humility is the right way to approach things. But I also think people should be unafraid to say, this is what I think of it now. So right now, my opinion is very much that it's all arising from your brain, but there are separate phenomena in your brain that you can learn to tease out or you can learn, like, I really think, again, data comes out that proves that I'm wrong, no problem. But I really think as AI comes online, what we're gonna realize, these are all patterns and that I can put a monk that's been meditating for 40 years and be like, oh, uh, looking at that pattern, I know right now he's practicing loving kindness, whatever. Oh, looking at that person, they're in a bout of anxiety over, oh, interesting, something to do with a pet. You know what I mean? Like, I really think it's going to get that good. Yeah, but it, it it may be that, right? These may just be modes. It could be, you know, it could be something else. So there's some base signal, right? And then there's Signal some- from inside or outside? You know, it, it's probably inside, you know, what we, um, what we understand it is to be inside, you know, uh, Francis Crick thought it, you know, it, it came from something called the claustrum as being a central kind of rhythm generator in the brain, but you know, whatever, some system that's kind of the base self system and then anxiety is layered on top of it, you know, but that's different than switching between two modes, right? Switching between a mode of thinking about self and, and being anxious. Um, so I, I'd argue more that way, right? That you've got some, you've got some core, probably self-representation, something driving the networks to start going in a direction because there has to be something moving the system. You know, the reason why I've done a lot of hypnosis research is because you externalize control, right? So you can have a suggestion um, come into your brain and then you act on that suggestion, mm. right? So you can highly hypnotizable people. They will, um, people that get absorbed in things, they will get, um, you know, they, they will be very suggestible to all sorts of things that are out of their volition, you know? And I used to not, I used to think this is kind of BS. Like when I got to Stanford, it was, you know, hypnosis is a big thing. I attended David Spiegel's course and I, you know, I had this, um, had this experience, I'm not that suggest, you know, not that hypnotizable, I had this experience of doing a group hypnosis. There was a bunch of doctors in the room, right? And so I'm supposed to have my eyes closed, but I'm kind of like, you know, looking, watching this and I see all these guys, they tell them to put the arm up and they're like fixed in the air. 
And I went up to all of them after and I was like, you know, you like just did that to be compliant, right? Like, no, no, like, I, I had no volition over it. That's you know? such a trip. Right? I so I want to be hypnotizable, but from what I can tell, I am mildly hypnotizable at best. Um, if you if you think about that though, if you're externalizing to some other entity to drive behavior, then there's got to be something driving that behavior internally. That's a representation, either a representation of self or mind or some combination of that. But we just don't we don't even know where that originates, right? Why would you say that? So my read of that would be that your brain evolved to know that data will be coming from the outside and to do things with that data. Oh, for sure. It's, it's two different. There has to be a, a source point in the brain or a, a primary network in the brain that's driving, that's causal, you know? It, it to to be able to have volition you have to have that you know have to have some some organ some circuit however you want to think about mm. it in the brain that's driving it you know if not then because nah so i may be misunderstanding you do you say that because you assume that we have free will um i say that because well, yeah, I, I'm assuming we have free will, yeah. Interesting. I don't think we have free will, though the illusion is so compelling, I don't spend any time thinking like, oh, I don't have free will. I act as if I do, but when I really stop and think about what I know about the universe so far, I'm just like, nah, probably not. Like, this is probably all mappable. Meaning if you knew everything, like there was a theory of everything, you understand physics completely, there's nothing that's unknown or unexpected that you could then map out how every billiard ball will react when hit by any other billiard ball and the amount of friction on the table, et cetera, et cetera. And that all of our neuronal firing and all of that stuff is, it's all trackable. We just don't have the data to be able to track it. Yeah, I mean, a absolutely. I think that's totally true. It's it's more about, at the end of the day, if you, if what you're saying is true, then it's all just reward reinforcement that where mm -hmm. our entire experience is you know, assuming what you're saying, it's all just reward reinforcement. We're just being driven completely by externalized stimuli being processed as threat or pleasure or some derivation of that. Welcome um, to my worldview. That's yeah, I, literally I, no, what I, I think. Tell, I tell That's you. why I say like you're having a biological experience. Understand how this all works. The great news is that as you enter, as you become aware of it, what I'll call awake in the matrix, I wish that word wasn't getting a weird reputation. Uh, but as you become awake in the matrix, you can suddenly intercept some of these things and go, ooh, I would like to react now in this way. I'm not just going to be beholden to my emotions. And you really can insert a level of awareness even if whether you get that level of awareness is something you can choose to do or not, which I doubt, yeah. but it certainly feels like you can. And so uh, becoming but that, but aware that, becomes but useful. But that awareness isn't, I mean, I suppose you could argue that's reward driven as well, but the sort of thing that people who are, you know, serious meditators, maybe some of the psychedelic crew, you know, that, that whole set of writers, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't map onto the way that standard reinforcement happens in the brain. You know, I think that's really the, 
I agree with you that there are probably a lot of people walking around in the world that are, you know, kind of driven their mind brain, their mind brain self is kind of all fused together and they're being driven primarily by these reward aversion loops. Right. Um, but the sort of like meditative descriptions that people say, unless you can argue that that's all being driven by some other way of reinforcing reward doesn't play on to the, to this, you know, more standard kind of reward story, you know? Can you give me uh, an example specifically of what they would say? Cause like, and while you think of that to all the people out there, I get this every time I bring this up, they're like, Tom, as soon as you do psychedelics, you're going to realize that your worldview is just absolutely ridiculous. Cool. Fair enough. I'm very open to that data point. And, and it is merely at this, actually, there's two things that stop me legality and uh, I recently read a story about a guy that did um, psilocybin for the first time, and it sent him off on like a four month or longer, like manic episode. Yep. And he said it ended up ruining his life. And I was like, whoa, that was sort of the first um, calming thing. I was like ready to go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was like, Ooh, maybe not. I don't advocate for anybody to take psychedelics for you know, personal reasons in the, in that kind of a context, if that makes sense. Um, as kind of as a physician, I think they're useful within a kind of diagnostic framework. What I can tell you is the people that do advocate for those things, you know, you know, that, that that's the sort of thing that you hear the risk, as you've aptly pointed out, is there are certain people, particularly people that are on the kind of psychotic, mm. um, you know, hypomanic bipolar spectrum, in which psychedelics are um, really contraindicated, right? And all the trials like intentionally strip out anybody that has a, th a threat of that. Although there there is an ongoing trial, interestingly, of people with an established psychotic disorder um, diagnosis um, being explored right now, which will, I'm really looking with psychedelics. To. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whoa! And and they've given you know schizophrenic patient full blown schizophrenic patients ketamine, I think. And they don't have a worsening of their, their psychotic symptoms. So uh, Carol Tomingo down at UT Southwestern did a lot of that work. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that what you hear from people, if you go to psychedelic science or you talk to patients that receive this, is there there ends up being an experiential stripping of these things apart. And, and that could all just be, you know, a construction Right. As you, as you aptly point out, and that's, that's why all of this is all theoretical. Like there's no, like what you're saying, I think is theoretical. What I, the, the various things I'm saying are all theoretical. Your personal worldview is most aligned with, I'd say the majority of neuroscientists walking on earth today. Right. So your view is what, if we had a polling at society for neuroscience, what, most of those folks would would argue would say if you did polling at psychedelic science 2023 it'd be a majority of those folks probably you know and so it's just one of these things where it's hard to it's i i don't like to kind of and the reason why i'm not giving you a firm answer on this and why i'm giving you a lot of like open questions is yeah. because i don't i don't like to have opinions maybe to your point i don't like to have opinions that aren't testable and at the current state of things, you, your, while your 
views align with the majority of neuroscientists, you know, there that's a, some of that's probably an extrapolation from animal studies and stuff like that, which I would argue the whole human experience is beyond what animal cognition is. Um, you know, and then the, the, you know, the psychedelic crew, um, or even maybe some of the hypnosis researchers having a different viewpoint on this is all experiential and maybe at the end of the day, to your point, just kind of self fulfilling prophecy or self deluding or self or beliefs that are, that are kind of getting entangled in, in worldviews around what the science is. But, you know, to your point, we don't have the tools to, to measure it. So it's, it's it, in 2023, an impossible question to answer, but an important, a very important one, you know, and, and once we get a handle on that, if we really, if it really is that the brain is truly just, you know, self propagating and you kill a part of the brain and you kill that part of the person forever. And that's just that part of that person is dead. Um, or until we find ways to regenerate the brain dead or whatever, then, um, you know, then it aligns with the, the sort of way you're thinking about it. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, I don't love, I don't love, I try to bite off chunks that are more proximal to the tech we have now. And then that allows for me to have a real bet and then have an answer that's yielded out of it. So this idea of like moving hypnotizability up transiently, like we had enough science to be able to go and say, yeah, we can, we can do that. Or being able to figure out, you know, you know, kind of slick ways of, of cutting, you know, speed of stimulation um, down to really short periods of time and asking questions about moving brain circuitry quickly or slowly, or what's the nature in some ways, what's the nature of the brain circuitry. So we have a study now where we scan people every day and then we look at, you know, the change in the circuitry as it relates to the change in symptoms. So does the circuitry change precede the behavioral change or vice versa? Mm -hmm. It tells you something inherently about, you know, when, you know, based off what you're saying, you'd assume the circuitry has to either change concurrently or before, and then you'd have a behavior change. I actually don't. I think that there is something where you could, you can do it in either direction. And that's part of what's utterly fascinating. It's like smiling and then feeling better or feeling better. And then smiling, you can actually go either direction. Well, if this, it would be, it'd be weird if the stimulation changed the behavior without a brain change from what you were saying earlier, right? Like you'd have to assume that the brain changed for, for, for a stimulation induced experiential change to happen. It's interesting. I think you have to bypass like physics principles. Hmm. We, Oh God, we didn't really open up a can of worms there. Uh, so I will, I'll, I'll tap out with that question hanging in the air. Uh, brother, this has been so fascinating. I've absolutely loved this. Where can people follow you? Um, so Stanford brain stimulation lab is, uh, the best place to follow our work and yeah, happy to particularly have patients come in and, you know, be interested in, uh, some of the studies. So. Amazing boys and girls. If you haven't already be sure to subscribe and until next time, my friends be legendary. Take care. Peace.